Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being part of my world. Um, Today is episode 43 and I will level with you. Um, This episode was always going to be happening, but this is not quite the episode I had planned. Um, But yeah, the one I had planned is coming soon. Um, But yeah, there's just been a slight delay. Um, But yeah, I am today using um, some old footage, um, but it's really an incredible interview that I'd done and really very interesting. And it's with um, it's with Harry Parekh, and he is now a third year trainee, whereas when we met to do the interview, um, I believe he was getting interviews for training. Um, he might well have just been told he had a place on training, actually. So um, it was interesting to listen back to this episode because I think I've become a better podcaster over the last couple of years. Um, and yeah, just it feels like a lot has changed in my life, you know, since then. So I've just checked and we got this published in May 2020. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, coming up um, almost two and a half years ago, probably since we filmed it. And loads has changed. You know, what we know is that we were in a much earlier stage of the pandemic at that time. Um, And I um, was filming on my NHS laptop at that time and then it all got stuck on there and we couldn't get it off so we could only get the sound off. So um, despite the fact we had filmed ourselves, um, it was stuck and so um, we couldn't couldn't access the video. and so it was, um, yeah, just audio only. Um, and we're keeping it audio only today because I don't have any additional um, video, but you can definitely watch it on um, YouTube if you do like to access your podcasts that way. Um, there will be a blog um, post coming soon as well, but um, it's not quite ready yet, but it will be coming soon. So I thought this was a really interesting episode to bring to your awareness as aspiring psychologists um, because um, the term apostate wasn't one that I was aware of. Um, And it's a hidden research population, but also potentially a hidden trauma 
population too. So um, I won't say too much more about it, um, but I hope you find this really interesting and really inspiring. So I will catch you on the other side. Right. So, hi, I'm Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I've got a keen interest in research and I spotted some really interesting research um, just yesterday, actually, and it got me very excited. And so I reached out to the, uh, the person that's written the research and he's here with me today. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, my name's Harry Parekh. Um, I wrote the research uh, study on apostates as a hidden population of abuse victims which was published in January of this year. Um, I've got around four years experience working in, in psychology so so yeah I've got my stripes. <laughs> okay oh honestly I'm so excited to speak to you. Um, I predominantly worked in adult mental health but also children and families so um, I was surprised to learn of a really big interesting word that I had no idea what it is. <laughs> even to look at it on paper, I was like, I don't even know how to say that. Can you take us through what what yeah. it is? So apostate is is a big word, and it's it's the way that the it's the way that the religious kind of describe. It's it's a it's a term used by the religious to describe people raised within religious families who once identified as religious but have now ceased to believe in the existence of a god, gods, or follow that religious belief. So, and then they now identify as non-religious. So it's the people that have gone from being religious to non-religious. Okay. So there's not like a tick box option on forms that we see as yet saying apostate, apostate, um, no. but it's, you'd sort of either, you'd go for like no religion or... Yeah, you go for no religion, religion, you go for atheist or you go for, you know, other... Um, I think it's it's one of those terms which isn't really widely used or really widely recognised. Um, it's kind of used as a as a as a kind of label used by the religious to negatively sometimes associate somebody with that word. So it's but the people that have gone through that process seem to have taken it on themselves and kind of yeah. own the word. Okay, so they're they're owning it, they're doing it, but it's yeah. actually originally was a, a, a derogatory term right yeah, exactly. that's interesting perhaps we need to think about rebranding it um, but I guess whatever it is for now it's just important that we talk about it and you know for me who's um, a qualified clinical psychologist who have never heard of this term um, it was you know I'm, I'm also excited to learn new terms and new things but it feels like something I should have known about see I don't think you should have done and I think okay. that's the beauty of it in that this is, a, this is a problem with hidden populations in that nobody should know, nobody would know mm -hmm. that this exists within normal kind of consensus and normal kind of conversations. In the same way that all those years ago, nobody knew that domestic violence was a thing. Nobody knew that sexual violence was a thing mm. or honor-based violence was a thing. And it's the same rhetoric in going, it's not a, you know, it's not a hindrance on, on any professional to not know what it is. When, for example, this is the first time the academic sphere can actually point themselves to an academic piece to say this exists so i would never say that an, a, prof a professional should have known it if yeah. anything what it does is it adds to the professional repertoire of any professional working in in the field to go oh hang on a minute are we missing something out and that's mm. the conversation which i'm sure you're interested in um so yeah no you know no, no worries about not knowing it but the beauty of being a professional is that once you do know it, you're like, oh, 
I love that I know it. So thank you for introducing that to my uh, my consciousness. But also it will be something that I honestly, sincerely will take with me to think about with with clients, regardless of their faith um, or current faith. Um, I guess having read your research, everybody should. Very interesting. Um, it was really it's, you know, it, for me. It's so important to think about family systems, um, but also family backgrounds. So um, you know, you you said that actually people who class themselves in apostates and took part in your research um, had experienced violence um, from family members because of that. Precisely, and it's. You know, it's the same issues that you have with intrafamilial kind of family violence. Mm. It's, it's that kind of area where, you know, these these um, these victims are being, as the kind of terms go, they're being assaulted, they're being seriously assaulted, and they're being psychologically abused. You know, mm. the difference between the assault and the serious assault is the difference between pushed and shoved to being threatened to be killed or being threatened to be harmed with, you know, like a knife or a gun or something more serious than that. And psychological abuse contains the plethora of things like coercive control, stress, mm -hmm. depression, isolation, you know, um, neglect, um, you know, all of those kind of uh, terms as well, which we, we see within the kind of clinical framework when we work, you know, I've got experience working with people that have been through domestic violence and it's very similar um, kind of notions of the things that they've gone through. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's bringing on a seriousness in the fact that leaving a religious faith or making that decision that this perspective might not be for you has consequences that are very extreme and we need to be very aware of actually within certain frameworks how is this working when they're going to the GP when they go you know when families going to the GP with a child when they're going to hospital when they're seeing a nurse and they're seeing a midwife in all these kind of different areas or when they're going to school you know we only have to look at the kind of um, we only have to look at the cases the case studies of things like Victoria Klimbier, um, Baby P, Daniel Pelker in Coventry, you know, um, Sabji and Suji Atwell, you know, or Shafir Ahmed, and look at the honor-based violence within that, all the different cultural and traditional issues and go, people in positions of power struggle to question that. Why did they struggle with that? And actually what's related to that? We've only just got to the point now where we were able to, where we've got systems in place for professionals to do that. And I'm basically saying, hi, you, you need to add another one into that, into that remit. And here's something for, sadly for professionals, here's another, here's another angle that we need to be, we need to be aware of. Because another, we, another thing for us to think about on our training, but really important yeah, to think about. Because you could, you could imagine them going to the GP with their, with their parent or with their carer and having gone through all of this stuff and not being able to voice it. It's the same way as women aren't able to voice about rape or not able to voice about sexual violence or domestic mm. violence. And how do we allow that to happen? Yeah. Again, training. One of my um, clinical specialties has become working with people um, who have been traumatized, either through sort of type one trauma, so like something extreme, like a explosion or something like that, but also type two traumas, which would be kind of stuff that adds up that is smaller stuff or joined up or developmental trauma so stuff from their childhood uh, first 18 years of life I don't know if you're aware of it but there's a scale that um, is widely used um, in trauma populations called the ACE so the adverse childhood experiences scale and when yeah. I was reading your research I guess I was wondering whether the people who were um, in your 
survey whether if they'd been aced um, before it's possibly in every future research whether they all were how high their ACE score would have been anyway so whether they they're more likely to become an apostate to turn away from a family that's always been quite scary and quite controlling or whether actually maybe their ACE score for the first 18 years of life maybe their ACE score was zero um, but then the reaction to leaving the faith um, has evoked this violence do you see what I mean yeah, I think I think the, the 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 complication of of this with an ace would be that it's not necessarily that it's through it's not necessarily that it will, that it will always be through adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. that somebody would therefore leave. For example, you could turn, you know, you could go through childhood completely like you know you could go through childhood completely fine, and maybe then decide that actually this perspective isn't for me, but the childhood was completely fair and there were no complications there. Mm -hmm. And you could be an 18 year old going, this isn't for me. You know, we also also know of um, people within like Jehovah's Witness communities who there was an 80 year old lady that left at 80. And she's like, I'm finally able to leave, for example. So so the the ace would perhaps not Mm -hmm. kind of figure out the intricacies of what constitutes somebody leaving because Thora is, is, is massive. I wonder whether it might have some predictive power for thinking about what the familial, familial reaction would be though. So it might not necessarily be Maybe. a contributor to them wanting to, to become an apostate, but mm. whether or not they, whether, you know, it might be predict- predictive for the violence or the hostility. True. I think that what we, what we found and what we find is that it's whether somebody makes the public announcement that they've left, um, whichever religious denomination, um, if they leave, it's primarily focused on what's going to be the reaction of the family when I do it. So some people care about the reaction quite a lot, mm. or some people go, you know what, I need to make the I need to make the call and I'm done. For the people that need, for the people that take a lot more thought into the reaction of other people, there's a concern as to going. You're making a decision based on you, but you're adding all these factors involved to make sure that you know is the decision I'm making legitimate. Um, they weigh in, and they that that ace would then have a bit of a bit of power to it, then or a bit of strength to it to go. Well, actually, if the if the you know if the if the household or if the, the the factors within it are kind of threatening towards somebody leaving in that way, then maybe there's there's something in that where they would suggest that they would remain within such practices or they wouldn't challenge it or they'd find that they couldn't um which would be really useful information yeah um, again future research isn't it mm. that's the joy of future research I'd, I'd seen that in your paper you'd you'd referenced it to sort of almost be like being like coming out if somebody's uh you know coming out to their family about their sexuality and sort of likened that disclosure um as becoming an apost- apostate yeah, there's um, because because interestingly, the notions of gender and sexuality, and the the way that that is concentrated upon within kind of religious households or religious communities, and the way that that's perceived, especially if you're you know uh, if you if you um, identify as part of the LGBTQ plus range, um, that the, there's a complication there of how people might react to that mm-hmm. now. The, the severity that that could bring is very similar to an apostate coming out because the sad thing is is that scriptures don't provide any leniency and neither do community structures and neither do family mm. structures either. So 
the severity. I'm surprised to see your appendices at the end of the research with the, oh, yeah. the bits of scripture from different faiths, literally saying <laughs> what, what should happen to people who, who look elsewhere for religion. And that's only a snapshot. And that was mm -hmm. only, you know, I had like, I think I had like two or three pages before I brought it to Vince. Um, who's the second author who's my supervisor and I was just and he was just like you need to cut that down and you just just okay. pick the, just pick the just yeah. pick a few um, there's, again, always, it, there's always more to say isn't there but the word count doesn't allow it <laughs> and I think that you know you we can't get away from the fact that it's written in a way where leniency is 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 not there mm. for making such decisions um, and, and yeah we have to be aware of that but to be fair, just because it's written doesn't mean we have to do. So mm. again, it's looking at human reaction and it's looking at, you know, it's um, with the CFT model, for example, you're looking at the threat systems of, of people that you're then approaching. You're looking at the, the way that people mm. react to, to news that they weren't expecting. Um, and factoring that is, is mm. probably the biggest part of this. Yeah, so if, if we could have mental health professionals, professions know and do one thing other than be accepting um, and open without judgment. Is there anything you think would be useful for us to be doing or to know? I mean, it's, it's this thing of, um, for example, the, the concern when we started this was how will the psychological kind of professional population view this? And well, this one loves it. <laughs> this one thinks it's really useful. <laughs> Yay! Um, and that's the point in that actually what we're trying to say is that up until now, perhaps, the way that um, the structures of religion and the way that communities and, and, and families kind of assert themselves around a religious faith and belief and traditions and, and cultures and values, psychologically speaking, is gold dust because a lot of the people that I've worked with over the years don't have half of that. Mm. And you think, you know what, having that level of stability, if we use CFT terms, using you know, compassion-focused therapy terms, if they have that kind of sense of stability and support, then actually that would provide them with at least a little bit more of an opportunity going forwards, which is what a lot of the research would say. We're kind of turning that on, our, on, the, on, the, on its head a little bit here where we're saying, hang on a minute, guys. I know that all of you guys are saying that this is all fabulous stuff. What happens when it doesn't work? And mm -hmm. I think that it's that perspective that the academic sphere, even in psychology, hasn't seen before. There are plenty of activists that have spoken about it, but this is the first time academically we can say, hang on a minute, let's question and critique this beautiful thing that we think is, is a really good thing. So it's about our ability to reflect and go, just because they've got, family structures, community structures, religious ties, and da 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 doesn't mean that that, that means that that's, that's positively enabled going forwards. Actually, do we need to question that or do we need to look at that a, bit, a little bit more in depth and how has that operated for, for them? Mm. Um, if, if anything, within, within, a, within intervention, I think, I think you could probably appreciate it gives you this extra level of going, well, let's just tap into that a little bit and let's see where that's at. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's an angle that perhaps clinicians haven't had. Gives us a bit of added value and a bit of confidence to think about it. Yeah, and and the notion of you can think about it in those ways, like mm -hmm. you can question, you know, the 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 ident, you know, when you're when you're working with a with a patient, for example, for a number of years, 
you know, you learn to, you know, you formulate that patient, you understand the kind of how they are, why they are, where they are, what's caused it, etc. Mm. If anything, this gives you an extra angle within that to go, hang on a minute, let's just, let's just, this means so much to you. In what way? How? Where does that come from? Mm. And actually, I remember working with a patient previously and her religious identity was part of the domestic violence that she'd been through. So technically, having to talk, having to talk about the religious faith at the same time of talking about her trauma, kind of trauma and domestic violence history, you can't not separate. You, you can't keep them can't both separate. Them. Yeah. You've got to bridge the gap and go. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, your thoughts on this side and your thoughts on this side kind of match up here. Yeah. Where's that's 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 concerning. Okay. Um, we need to have that ability as professionals to have the confidence to say, you know what, I can question that religious part or I can question that cultural part and I can mm-hmm. question that traditional part. If you do it from a position of respect, I think that's okay. And, you know, inquiry yeah. and thinking yeah. about what whether it's, you know, keeping some of the problems stuck. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I was really interested to know that there's an organisation as well that supports people. So I'd never heard of Faith to Faithless. Um, but that's something you mentioned in your in your research as well. Yeah, so um, so they work as the apostate service for the non-religious charity Humanist UK. Um, I currently work as their volunteers manager. So what we do is we support and work. I know, right? There's always been, <laughs> um, we work to support non-religious and apostates who have gone through these experiences. Um, I think we also provide things like safeguarding training for professionals. We provide, um, you know, we're, you know, we go to universities to deliver talks we, and all those kind of things. So we're, right. we're trying, we're trying. Um, and hopefully the aim is such a varied experience. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, this is the point in that I was very lucky in that, you know, I was originally Hindu and I became an apostate at university. Okay. I went through none of the adverse issues that are raised in the paper. Mm. Working with, when I used to run the student sector of Humus UK, I met um, the co-founders of Faith Bakers who were at MTS Shams and um, Alia Salim. And that was when they were a standalone organization. And I realized that actually people are being abused as a result of leaving their religious faith. Well, this mm. is the truth. Um, at the same time I was doing my masters, in uh, forensic and criminological psychology and they were like you know pick a dissertation topic come on find something <laughs> do you, do you ever sleep <laughs> no um and you know they were basically i was failing at finding a dissertation topic and then uh, vincent was just like what do are you, what you know do what you know do what you enjoy what you and i was like well vince here's an area that hasn't been looked at before and i mean he's he knows his stuff and he was like well that's piqued my interest okay um was peak mind too. That decision all those years ago has led, led us together today. Well, we're looking at 2015, <laughs> 2016 when this was, hey. was, a, was a master's thesis on its own. Right. So it's taken a good four or five years for it to get to the point of publication. Yeah, well, um, it, brought, it brought us together, Harry. <laughs> oh, it's been so nice to talk to you. And honestly, you've given me such food for thought. So Thank you for doing the research, but also then thanks for following it through and actually writing it up and get it to publication because so many of us, myself included with my, um, my doctoral thesis, just never got to publication. And yeah, yeah. well done to you because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of commitment. Thank you. It was, um, I, think, I think the argument from my point was that um, if we had 
I mean, we were really lucky to to kind of meet the hypotheses that, you know, there are people being abused for this. Um, you know, we were lucky that we made that, we, that we met the hypothesis for mm-hmm. that. So I think that it would have been... Those people uh, might have said they're unlucky, but yeah, in, terms, well, in terms of research goal. Yeah, <laughs> basically true. But I think the, the fact that we were able to, because we, not only did we work with Faith to Faithless, we were a Humanist UK. Yeah, we good, with, you've got a good sample as well. It's a, it's a nice size sample you had. Yeah, we worked with the Pia Tasha Foundation and we got a worldwide sample as well. So this yeah. isn't just going one nation is at risk. Yeah. This is, you know, throughout the entirety. Yeah. And I think that it would have been a disservice to the victims that put their name forward mm. um, to have not have um, pushed it forward for publication. And yeah. the fact that it's the first one is 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 just the icing on the cake, really, because we can uh, basically shout about it. I love that it is the first one because actually it makes everybody feel less alone. I'm sure all of the re- research participants, you know, have access to copying and feel really validated and heard because of that. But then, you know, for clinicians like me, I can evidence it. You know, I can I, correct 2020. You know, have you read that yeah. paper? Um, no, that's amazing. You know, that's a really, you know, it's really nice to be part of that. But it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to speak and it's going to keep on speaking. Um, to support clinicians, but also help um, clients feel heard, understood, and, and less isolated and alone. So it's really, I'm really glad that you've had that response to it because I think that that's what is. I think I think the next steps for this piece is is that's that's where it's headed in relation to getting more and more professionals becoming more and more aware mm-hmm. of this exists. Here's an area we didn't know. Okay, what do we do about it? And I think that having professionals like yourself go that's really interesting I'm glad it piqued my piqued my you know attention mm. means that it will gain more than what it would have done and hopefully the attention it can then gain will then work towards you know things like policy and procedure and kind of influencing mm. governments and the legislation and things like that as well so so yeah I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm pretty stoked yeah well me too well done good job Harry And thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today and to kind of get this story out there a bit more with mental health focus as well. Um, Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that really interesting. I could listen to Harry all day. And thank you for Harry for giving his consent for me sharing this as a podcast episode, because it's still a really important message that needs to get out there. And you can access his um, research paper. um, If you would like to, I will find um, a link in the show notes for that. So don't forget, we have the um, aspiring psychologist collective coming very soon. Um, I will update you on that as soon as it's available. The Clinical Psychologist Collective is available too. Um, And across this application season, um, I am leaving the membership um, open so that you can dive in um, at any point that you would like to. So there's loads going on there. We've got um, a research clinic, we've got um, CBT teaching and formulation, we've got um, live Zooms with me, as well as weekly opportunities to ask me anything. And during application season, we've also got a free eight-week live uh, mindfulness course as well. So there is so much going on and it's all for the monthly price of £30 a month and you can catch up on everything you've missed so far as well. If you've got any questions, give me a shout. Um, Otherwise, 
very much looking forward to catching up with you for the next um, episode of the Aspiring um, Psychologist podcast, which will land with you at 6am on Monday. Um, If you've got any ideas for what you'd like to feature in the podcast um, or content you'd like me to make, then please do let me know either via slipping into my DMs um, or um, by letting me know on the podcast page of my website. Um, so it's uh, goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk forward slash podcast. And then you can follow the links there to fill in the form. Do come and connect with me on socials. I love helping you celebrate and being part of what is going on for you. Um, I am Dr. Marianne Trent in most places, and I'd say I hang out most often on LinkedIn. Um, Thank you once again for listening. I hope you found this really useful. If you're um, watching um, on YouTube, please like and subscribe and bung me a comment in a few of the episodes whilst you're there. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do um, rate and review as it helps us to reach a wider audience. Thank you so much. Catch up with you very soon. Bye. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.